0: The book of Philemon is written by the Apostle Paul to the leader of a house church Philemon around 60 AD. Philemon was wronged by his slave Onesimus who fled to Paul's prison to seek help and in the process came to faith in Jesus. In his letter Paul asked Philemon to forgive Onesimus accepting him back into relationship as a brother in Christ. Paul points to the equal standing Jesus followers share as beneficiaries of God's grace but for Paul Partnership is not just an idea. It is to be acted out in relationship. Paul asks Philemon to receive back Onesimus, not just as a brother in Christ, but as if he were Paul himself. In addition, Paul commits to paying any debts accrued by Onesimus. Paul's letter to Philemon is saturated with gospel-motivated action. In advocating for reconciliation with Onesimus, Paul is pointing to God's reconciliation of the world through Jesus, who took on humanity's sin absorbing the consequence onto himself. As co-heirs of Grace Through Jesus, we can work through our broken relationships with grace and forgiveness because we first receive the ultimate forgiveness through Jesus on the cross.
1: Have you ever been betrayed before? It hurts, doesn't it? In fact, it's one of the deepest wounds that we carry around, it's our trust and wronging us. In this life, we expect enemy fire from the enemy lines. We don't expect it from the person box hole next to us, right? And so betrayal is one of the deepest aches in our soul, and we wonder sometimes, can things be made right? Can we be reconciled? With that person see because of the pain it makes forgiveness and reconciliation a challenge not only do you want restoration to be made you are you sometimes wonder do I actually want reconciliation and restoration with that person or uh, do I want to just keep them at a distance uh, the letter of Philemon is a letter about forgiveness and reconciliation And how the gospel not only makes it possible, but makes it central to our lives as believers. It's Paul's shortest letter. That's why it's the last one recorded in the New Testament. Did you know that? The letters of Paul are are given in order of their length. That's the deep theological meaning. And so we come to Philemon, the end. It's a personal letter to a guy named Philemon about his runaway slave, Onesimus. It's a letter that subverts the very institution of slavery to the core, not by calling to its end, but by weakening its foundations. So we're going to dive in. We'll walk through the letter and explore the implications between Philemon and Onesimus, two men that had wronged each other. And then we'll look at the implications for our lives and our relationships at the end. Sound good? Let me just fill you in on the backstory as best I can. Philemon is a well-to-do Roman citizen who lives in the small city of Colossae. You guys remember the letter of Colossians? Okay, It's that city. It's a city that Paul hadn't visited, but he did send a letter to, along with this letter to an individual by the name of Philemon. Uh, at some point in the past, most likely when Paul was in the city of Ephesus for three years doing ministry there, Philemon meets him and becomes a Christian, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Ephesus was about 70 miles away from Colossae. To our knowledge, I don't think Paul ever went to the city of Colossae, but he knows some people there, one of them being Philemon, who's a well-to-do Roman citizen from there, and another named Epaphras, who probably came to Christ during his Ephesus ministry as well. And these two men were instrumental in starting a church, or at least a house church, in the city of Colossae. Now, like all wealthy patriarchs of his day, Philemon would have owned slaves and used them to run his household and do some of the chores. One of his slaves was a man named Onesimus. And while we don't know all the intricacies of what happened, we do know that Onesimus ran away and probably stole from Philemon in order to pay for his escape journey. He finds his way to the city of Rome because the largest city in the empire is probably one of the best places for a runaway slave to hide and simply blend in. And while he's in Rome, he meets the apostle Paul who's under house arrest there. Onesimus becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he actually becomes integrally involved in the ministry of the church in the city of Rome. As Paul is under house arrest, Onesimus kind of helps him and serves him and and, and makes life easier for him and does much of the work of the church. But in getting to know him and hearing his story, Onesimus' story comes out. Not only his story, but the fact that he ran away from someone that Paul knows very deeply having led him to Christ, that he had run away from Philemon, and so Paul is now faced with a dilemma. Even though he loves Onesimus and he's become vital to him in ministry in the city of Rome, there is this fractured relationship that exists between two Christians that he knows and loves, Philemon and Onesimus. And so he makes a decision at great cost to himself to send Onesimus home, to reconcile with Philemon and he gives him this letter to kind of pave the way and facilitate the reconciliation between these two men. So the letter of Philemon is from Paul, while he's still under house arrest, to Philemon and most likely his wife named Aphia, who would have probably been over the household slaves, on Onesimus's behalf to help facilitate this relationship. It's a, it's a delicate situation. You can see where it's, it's ripe for someone to get like really hurt. We see Paul, that he has a lot to lose, not only in that he's losing one of his right-hand men who's helping to serve and facilitate the ministry of the church, but he's, he's potentially sending a nuclear bomb into this small little church if it doesn't go well, right? People know Philemon, and they probably recognize Onesimus, and so if this doesn't go well, if this reconciliation blows up, you have a, you have a problem in the church in Colossae, and Paul's way out in Rome, and he can't do anything about it. And so there's a big risk that he's taking in doing that. Onesimus probably has the greatest risk of all, because while slavery in the Roman Empire wasn't exactly like the slavery that existed in this country, as a slave, you still didn't have rights. You were still at the beck and call and the mercy, and they were not kind to runaway slaves. See, Rome was, was well known for squelching anything and everything that smelled like rebellion or a slave revolt. And so Onesimus, going back, if this goes poorly, he could end up in prison or he could lose his very life as a runaway slave. But then you got Philemon and Aphia. And in addition to their personal hurt and feelings of betrayal there was probably a lot of social pressure on them to not be lenient. You see, the people that they probably ran with in their social circles owned slaves as well and were always nervous about a slave revolt. And so to welcome him back to go lenient, to go easy on Onesimus would have probably gotten the ire of a lot of their friends or socialites saying, you can't do that, you're going to make life hard for the rest of us. And so Paul, recognizing all of the implications of this potential conflict, sends Onesimus back with this letter, along with the letter of Colossians, with a guy by the name of Tychicus, and tries to facilitate their reconciliation. So here's what it says. Let's read it together. Philemon 1, there's only 25 verses, takes about three minutes to get through. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because of the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Paul cares deeply about Philemon, doesn't he? Verse 8, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. "'Formerly he was useless to you, "'but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. "'I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. "'I would have been glad to keep him with me "'in order that he might serve me on your behalf "'during my imprisonment for the gospel. "'But I preferred to do nothing without your consent "'in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, "'but by your own accord. "'For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you "'for a while, that you might have him back forever.' No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother. Yes, brother. I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, who's also from Colossae, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So, this short letter has a greeting, it has a prayer, it has a request, and it has a charge. Do you feel the dance of the letter? Like the the tension. Like Paul is saying, I could command you to do something, but I don't want to. Here's this situation, and I want you to do the right thing, but I don't want to have to tell you to do it. It's kind of the, the dance that we see. He says, I have I've much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because of the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. I love hearing the stories of all of the people that have been blessed by you and your wife Appia's life. I'm grateful for you and all you do, but now I want you to do another act of love for me. I want you to accept Onesimus back, forgive him and restore him, but not as a slave, as a brother in the Lord. I can't tell you how politically charged that request is. It, it, it would stir up and cause in Roman society all kinds of issues among the people of God and in culture at large. He appeals to them like a father of adult children who doesn't command but rather says, I want you to do the right thing. Here, you choose to do the right thing. <clears throat> Accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ, verse 8, to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I, I prefer to appeal to, to you, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Here. Turn, the, turn it on mute before you cough. So Paul's saying, I want you to do the right thing, and I could command you to do the right thing. I'm an apostle after all. But I want to suggest it so that it's not done out of compulsion, but rather you're doing it because you understand the implications of the gospel and you want to welcome him back, not as a slave any longer, but as a brother in the Lord as that has reshaped your understanding of this world. Paul says, it would have actually been really good if I could keep him with me because he's become so beneficial to the church in Rome, but I didn't want to do that without your permission. I didn't want to do that under compulsion. I know you probably would have said, oh, that's fine, Just keep using them there, but I understand that the relationship that you have together is important, and I want that to be reconciled first so that you can do so out of joy. I think what Paul is doing here is a beautiful example of Christian leadership. I could compel you, but rather I would invite you to make the right decision. I would invite you to understand the implications of the gospel. He doesn't command, he appeals. He doesn't lay down his apostolic authority in the the greeting of the letter, Paul, apostle of Jesus, but rather Paul, a prisoner for the Lord. Because he's giving them the opportunity to do the right thing. And it's so much more beautiful when it is freely chosen rather than coerced, right? Especially in the messiness of relationships. But make no mistake, what he's asking them to do, receive him back not as a slave but as a brother. There's a, there's a wordplay that goes on here in verse 11 that's kind of fun. He says, formerly Onesimus was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. It, you would understand that if you spoke Greek that Onesimus actually means literally useful. And he's saying when he ran away from you and stole from you and was living in Rome, he was useless to you. But now he's come to Christ and I'm sending you back so that he might once again be Onesimus or useful to you. It also gives you an indication of how slaves were often held in their social standing. They named them by their utility. Useful. Not very much. But Paul says he's now very useful to you and to me as well. And then Paul says, I want you to step back and I want you to just reflect on what takes place here before you make any decisions. For this... Verse 15, for this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant or slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Paul says, just step back and think about all the coincidences that had to happen in order for this story to be told he had to run away, and he had to flee to Rome of all places. There was lots of places to hide, but he goes to Rome, the capital city, which is a big city. There's a lot of people, and he just so happens to meet the Apostle Paul, and he just so happens to hear the gospel and give his life to Jesus and then devote his life in service to the Apostle Paul so that he is open and honest about his story and his past, and it just so happens that the very person that leads him to Christ also had led Philemon to Christ years ago. Yes, that creates the problem, but it's also a beautiful story of redemption. And Paul says, perhaps the reason why he ran away is so that you would have him not as a slave, but as a brother, which is better, which is better. And he says, not only that, not only receive him as a brother, but he now flips it on its head and he says, if you consider me your partner in the gospel work, receive him as you would receive me. Oh, In every possible way, Onesimus was an inferior in culture and society to Philemon. He was a slave. He had no social status. He didn't have wealth like Philemon had. He wasn't honored or revered in a particular city. And and so there was already a gap to say receive him as a peer, receive him as a brother. But now Paul says receive him as you would receive me, your spiritual father in the faith. Receive him with a sense of honor and reverence like you would treat me who led you to the Lord. Only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel can do that. And and let me just say, even though the Apostle Paul doesn't in his letter formally take on the institution of slavery and hit it head on, in fact, he gives slaves instructions on how they're to relate to and live among their masters, and masters how they're to treat their slaves, what he is doing here in laying out this letter of reconciliation is completely undermining an institution of slavery that any human being could own another human being. And let me just tell you that even though in our country uh, we experienced slavery and there was even Christians that endorsed it and used Bible verses to justify it, it is a complete aberration and abomination to those who are in Christ to think that way. It is. And, and, and it's interesting that here in the first century, it is Christians who are saying this stuff, no one else is. No one else is threatened by or wondering about the institution of slavery and whether it has validity or not. It is Christians who are saying that is incompatible with being in the family of God. We are equals together in Christ, so live like it and live out the implications of that. The gospel eliminates social hierarchy and class and puts us all on a level playing field with one another. That's the subversive nature of the gospel. It's where you can go to church and find an executive from Essentia submitting to an elder who's a godly mechanic. He maybe makes five times what that guy does, and yet that's not how God measures people. That's not how it works in the family of God, that we are equals, and God will call some from all different vocations to leadership in the church. In addition to that, Sometimes we can get so used to the phrases that are used in the New Testament that we forget how radical they were. In Roman society, the closest of relationships, of covenantal relationship, was with your siblings, brothers, and sisters. Often more so even than your relationship with your spouse. You were equals with your siblings. You were part of a covenant family together. And when one married, one took on, uh, a wife took on the family of brothers and sisters of the others And so for Christians to refer to themselves as brother or sister, they are taking the deepest of covenantal relationships and applying it to the church. Do you guys know what that means? It means that the bond created by the Holy Spirit of God is deeper than even the bond created in blood in physical families. It's saying that God has so united us together in a family that we relate to each other in an honest way by calling each other brother or sister in the Lord. So that means when there are fractures in relationship, it is a big deal to reconcile them, to live out in some ways the truth that the future will come and that we will be reconciled once and for all because of what Jesus has done. We're to live that out now in flesh and blood with broken people like you and me, and that's hard to do, but it's a beautiful picture of what the gospel does. And so that is what is at stake here in this particular letter, the the radically subversive gospel of Jesus Christ that reconciles, reconciles people that are at odds with one another. Now, in Paul telling Philemon to receive him back, not just as a slave, but as a brother, is Paul saying that his sin against Philemon didn't matter that it wasn't a big deal. No, not at all. In fact, it is only the gospel of Jesus that doesn't force us to choose between justice and mercy. You see, when we're wronged, and we feel this in our relationships, when we're wronged, we feel this innate sense of justice rise up, don't we? It hurts And that's not okay for someone to treat me like that or treat you like that, right? You feel that deeply in your bones or you see evil taking place on the news or somewhere around the world or right next door and you say, that should not be. There is justice that is demanded for that and yet, if we're honest about that, we also realize that we hurt others, that we are perpetrators of injustice and harm and that just as often as we have been hurt, we have hurt another person And so we're stuck, aren't we? Do I want justice or do I want mercy? Well, I want justice for everybody else, but mercy for me, right? But the gospel doesn't actually force us to choose. In fact, we get both in Jesus Christ. He comes and he lives the perfect life, the life that you and I should have lived but didn't live, laying down the righteous life before the Lord. And then the righteous one takes the punishment for our sin, takes the justice for our wrongdoing, and he bears it himself. He pays it in full in his own body on the cross. So that God upholds his justice by releasing judgment, but also extends mercy and grace and forgiveness to sinners. And not only that, he one-ups us. Do you know what he does? He extends an invitation to adopt us into the very family of God. And so while we deserve the justice of God, we are welcomed close like a brother or sister in Christ. And we are given an inheritance that is so stinking awesome that the angels long to look into it and, and... Don't fully even understand it. That's what we've been given in the gospel, and if that's been given to us and to another, that we should in some way live that out now. We should in some way taste and experience the goodness of that fellowship and partnership and reconciliation, not just with God, it is, but also with one another now. And in Ephesians chapter 2, the gospel is laid out for us in two different sections. Verses 1 to 10 speak about the reconciliation that needs to take place between us and a holy God. That Jesus bears the penalty for our sin so that we can be received back and reconciled into right relationship and fellowship with God our creator. And that is good news. But then it doesn't stop there. In verses 11 to 22, he goes on to explain the implications of the gospel. is that Jesus has also dealt with the hostility that exists between you and me, between people that have sinned against one another deeply, and that that hostility has been dealt with on the cross so that we get our blood and we are now reconciled. So we don't have to choose between justice and mercy, but rather we can forgive and extend forgiveness and receive reconciliation one to another without minimizing sin. That's the key to forgiveness. That wasn't even in my notes. You're welcome. Paul is simply asking Philemon and Aphia to live this out, even though it costs them dearly. Paul addresses the wrongdoing in verse 18. He says, If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me everything, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Paul says, I will pay. I will make restitution myself if needs be. Who does that sound like? Sounds a lot like Jesus. See, the first reading here is like, "Ah, Paul, you're kind of being a little passive-aggressive, aren't you? I mean, it's easy to read this in a manipulative way of like, charge me anything that's owed and, oh, by the way, uh, I got you out of hell. So, just saying. Unless, of course, there's something deeper going on here. Let me show you what it is. Paul is, in the letter of Philemon, personally embodying the sacrifice of the cross. In no way was it Paul's responsibility to pay Onesimus' debt, was it? He didn't sin against Philemon. He didn't wrong him. He didn't run away. He owes nothing to Philemon, but he says, charge it to me. That's a lot like Jesus. Onesimus is probably unable to pay off his own debt. He needed someone else to do that and to intercede for him, and that's exactly what Paul does. Did you know that the letter of Philemon is the only letter of Paul not to explicitly mention the cross? Why is that? Do you think he forgot? Not at all. Right? I mean, he he talks about it all the time. He says, "I, I, I resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So why doesn't he mention the cross in his letter to Philemon? Because he's embodying the message of the cross himself. And that's what we're meant to see. He says, I'll pay his debt. I will make it right. Now, why would Paul do that? It's because he understood the debt that he owed to God and what had been forgiven him. And so he forgives much. And he intercedes and stands in the gap. He says, But God shows his love for us in this, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. Now that radical grace that was offered to Paul and offered to Philemon is meant to be lived out in real relationships of forgiveness and reconciliation. Paul appeals to Philemon and to Aphia to do just that. To forgive, to restore, to treat Onesimus as a brother in the Lord and to hold him in high respect. And if you can't move past the restitution that you owe, I will pay it myself. Brothers and sisters, that is the gospel lived out for you. While you were at your worst, God gave you his best in Jesus. That has far-reaching implications on your life. Paul writes in verse 6 and verse 17 something that's really important for us to see. And I pray that the sharing of your faith, the word there is koinonia, may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. The, the sharing of your faith, the demonstration of your faith is meant to be lived out through this thing called koinonia or fellowship. Verse 17, so if you consider me your partner, it actually is the same word, koinonia, receive him as you would receive me. The word koinonia is usually re- uh, translated as fellowship or partnership. And we usually think about fellowship as, oh, yeah, you have other Christians over, and you, you experience this bond together, this love that you share for one another. And it is that, but it is so much more than that. It's the partnership that we have in the Lord, the bond that we have in the Lord, that when it is broken, it needs to be restored, often at great cost and with great risk. Paul didn't write the letter to Philemon to topple the institution of Roman slavery, although it did. He wrote to Philemon to make absolutely clear that in God's family, fellowship, partnership, koinonia, means something and it must be preserved. We are united together in the Spirit, living at peace and reconciled to one another, and we are giving a glimpse of the world that is to come. And so Paul writes and he makes this big ask and he closes by affirming the relationship in verse 22. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. If you go back to verse 21, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. There is a rock solid confidence even with the risk that Philemon will do the right thing. Why? Because he knows the gospel. And he's being invited to simply live out and display the implications of the gospel in his relationship with someone who's wronged him. Philemon had been forgiven much, and so therefore he forgives much, including Onesimus, who hurt him deeply. Now let's just close by talking about personal application here. What does this story about these two brothers and one of their wives have to do with us? Well, I'm guessing that no one here is pro-slavery or owns any slaves, at least I hope not, So we can simply marvel at the truth and beauty of how the gospel cuts slavery out at the roots when no one else was saying this, Christians were. Which makes the betrayal that took place in our country a few hundred years ago so grievous and evil and we're still picking up the pieces. Those who claimed Christ practiced this barbaric practice of owning other people and treating them poorly. But also, it was primarily those who knew Christ and their Bibles that succeeded in undermining it across the world. And both of those things are true. You see, our world might might want you to think that this idea of human rights and equality and whatnot just came out of the air or is self-evident like our Constitution says. It is not, it came from Christianity. No one else thought like this. No one else talked like this until Christians realizing the implications of the image of God and the union that we have in Christ realized that God has made us as image bearers equal with certain inalienable rights. It wasn't a product of the enlightenment that did this and self-evident to all. It was Christians who understood the implications of what God had said. It was people 1800 years before it was actually outlawed in this country saying receive him back not as a slave but as a brother and an equal in the lord treat him with the same respect that you would treat me in a world where that was unthinkable so don't believe the narrative that christians are all bad and that these like secular ideals just emerged from somewhere they didn't they didn't they emerged from the bible and people who hold them may or may not be Christians, but let's at least point to where they originated, okay? All right, second and perhaps more important, who do you need to reconcile with? Is there a relationship in your life that is not what it should be? And either you agree on what happened, it matters that you reconcile, especially if they're another believer. Now, caveat to this onesimus was ready to reconcile he was repentant he was broken he was willing to go back and face the consequences and even the apostle paul advocated for him because he knew the condition of his heart not everybody is in a position to be reconciled for reconciliation to happen it is a two-way street And you can't make the other person think or be sorry or do anything else. And so reconciliation is not demanded when someone isn't even sorry or repentant. In fact, I would say release the bitterness and forgive them because forgiveness is something that you can do. But I would actually advise against pursuing reconciliation if they're not sorry at all you're just going to put yourself back in the same spot to get hurt over and over and over again, right? So it's okay to have some boundaries and to realize as far as reconciliation is possible, I will pursue it, but it's a two-way street. Now, forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is something that you owe to all as a Christian who has been forgiven much. See, Jesus told a parable about a wicked servant who had been forgiven this insurmountable death, debt, not death, who went and choked out his fellow servant because he owed him a small minuscule amount of money after being forgiven that great extreme debt. And Jesus says that is incompatible with the gospel. If you understand that story rightly, you will understand that you are the person that's been forgiven much. Therefore, forgive. So what does that mean? Pastor Kyle, you're you're telling me I need to forgive. What does that mean? It means that you release bitterness by entrusting them to the Lord and that you're at least open to the possibility of reconciliation. It means that you stop drinking the poison of bitterness thinking it's going to hurt somebody else when really it's just destroying your own soul and entrust that particular person to the Lord knowing that he is just and merciful, knowing that God will either get vengeance far better than you ever could or he already did. And now you understand the cross in an even deeper level. (sighs) Guys, I I can tell you that the functional understanding of all that Jesus has bore has probably hit me in this area more than anything else. Because you feel the pain and the betrayal and the hurt. And to realize, especially when you're dealing with another believer, that Jesus paid that too. My understanding of the cross went from here to here. And then to realize in that moment that I've probably been the perpetrator on the other end of things sometimes. Jesus is a far more wonderful Savior than I ever dared hope. Is he not? And so as gospel people, as far as it depends on us, we want to live in a reconciled way. We want to extend forgiveness and to pursue reconciliation with one another. How do I do that? I I just touched on it a little bit. But actually, on November 11th, we're going to be having an all-day seminar on reconciliation and conflict resolution, I would invite you to come back to that. It's going to be from 9 until 3. Maybe you can go and register for that even now. The registration's live. All the guys in the room are like, that's deer hunting Saturday. Eh. (laughs) I'll just say there are some things more important than hanging a buck's head on your wall, and maybe the relationships that you have in your life might be one of them. That's not meant to be manipulative at all. I'm just saying. (laughs) Not that you owe me your whole life. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Guys, I know that the church community, for many of you, has been beautiful. And here's the thing. I have seen reconciliation happen in some of the most beautiful ways. And I've also seen reconciliation not happen. And it is deeply wounding and hurting. There is no magic bullet here that's going to change someone else's heart other than what God can do to heal and restore and reconcile. But look at the lengths that God already went to heal and restore and reconcile. I think we can trust him with our relationships, can't we? We're going to transition now to the communion table. And the communion table, in a lot of ways, is a celebration of our reconciliation in Christ. It's a family dinner. And we all come the same way through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. That he pays our debt, he pays our tab, so that we can experience the joy and the beauty of being part of the family of God. And as we eat this meal, we remember what he has done and the high cost that he paid, and we also look forward to the day that we get to do that with him in the kingdom. And we live at this kind of in-between point where we look back and we look forward. And one of the things that you and I need in that in-between point is constant reminders of who Jesus is and what he has done so that we live out the implications of that constant reminders of His great forgiveness toward us because that makes us long to forgive the hostility toward others. And so as a church, this shapes and forms us individually when we participate in this meal, but it also shapes and forms us together as a community. We realize that we are all needy, all broken, coming, needing Jesus to save. And we realize that we are all coming together. To the place of reconciliation, and it's around a table, foreshadowing the table that we will experience one day. Here's the thing. I know that there are some relationships with other Christians that right now you are just gridlocked, and there might be some hope, but I can tell you in Christ there will be a day when you won't have anything left to be upset about where you will be reconciled and no longer the sinners that you currently are. And that will be a rounded table as well in the kingdom. And so if that's our future, we want to experience that at least in part now. So, Christian, Christians, family of God, I welcome you to the communion table to remember Jesus' body broken and his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. If you're a Christian, you're welcome at this table, meaning you've put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus to save you If you're not a Christian, I just want to say I'm really glad that you're here today to hear the the power and the good news of the gospel. And if you're not there where you believe that and are trusting that yet, I'm just I'm glad you're here, but please don't participate in something that you don't actually believe in. Don't be a hypocrite. You're welcome here. We understand it takes a while to process through all that. However, if you're here this morning, you realize I need him to save me. And my invitation to you is to believe the good news of the gospel. That when Jesus died, he died for you. That when he rose, he rose for you. And that all that he has accomplished in salvation is yours by faith in him. Trust in him today, and you are welcome at this table. Let's pray. God, thank you for this communion meal that reminds us of our great need, that nourishes and encourages our faith as we look back and we look forward. God, would you reconcile us in a very tangible way that we might display the power of the gospel to a watching world. I thank you that you have reconciled us and that you are in the process of reconciling us one to another. Jesus, you told us in your word that sometimes it's better to leave our gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to a brother and then go and offer our sacrifice. And so I pray that as we take communion that we wouldn't rush but that you might bring to mind those that we might need to be reconciled with. Would you give us the courage and the grace that we need to pursue them? In Jesus' name, amen.